Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Psychology 360 podcast. Today, I am honored to have on Dr. Randy Thornhill. Randy is a distinguished professor emeritus at the University of New Mexico, and his position throughout his career is with the Department of Biology at, U at UNM in Albuquerque, and he has he's had temporary appointments with various universities, including the University of Helsinki, the University of Colorado, University of Melbourne, Kyoto, and a few more. Uh, now, Dr. Thornhill is an evolutionary biologist with a primary interest in animal behavior and psychology, including human behavior and psychology. Um, Dr. Thornhill has published more than 250 scientific publications and you have been cited over 37,000 times, which is quite impressive. Now, there's one uh, theory that, I, that caught my attention, and that is the germ stress theory. And uh, Randy, would you like to say anything else? Because you have quite a, quite a lengthy bio and a lot of interesting spotlights in your life, in academic life and scientific life. All right. Well, the parasite stress theory has been one big part of my research, a uh, major part of my research over the last, uh, oh gosh, 20 years now. And, uh, but other areas of research that I've uh, been involved in, in regard to humans, is physical attractiveness. So what, how we judge it, uh, what information we process uh, with physical attractiveness. And that's that comes out of my interest in sexual selection processes, that component of evolutionary biology is natural selection, sexual selection. And um, so a lot of my work on humans, birds, insects, spiders uh, has involved sexual selection processes. But uh, today we'll talk about the parasite stress theory of values, which is really hot these days. Um, so I'm ready to go on that when, uh, when you are. Well, yeah, and indeed, and I should say, I should also mention you were one of the founders of the field of evolutionary psychology. So, yeah, well, the reason I was uh, bring interested in this is because for the last two years, um, most of the world has been living and uh, experiencing a once in a lifetime event, which is the pandemic, which we've all um, lived through. Some of us have had it. Uh, some of us uh, have been impacted by it in some way or another. But what I'm interested in speaking about is seeing and looking at the historical precedence of this parasite stress in terms of rising levels of authoritarianism, uh, intolerance, and a general uh, distrust in others. So could you speak a little bit about, about that uh, in terms of the precedents that, that there are? Yes, let's just, let's just get into the uh, parasite stress theory of values and what it, what it involves. Sure. And then we can go to current events. Um, so the parasite stress theory of values is a scientific theory about how people get their values. That is what causes our values, our, our core values. And I'll explain what core values are in a moment. But it's a scientific theory about how we get our values. And it's, uh, it's both approximate and an ultimate scientific theory about how we get our values. By approximate, uh, I mean the causes of our values that act during the lifetime of the, of the individual. So in biology, we've got two levels, two general categories of causation, proximate or ecological uh, causation. And that's causes that act during the lifetime of the individual to give rise to the traits one is interested in. And then the ultimate causation is evolutionary causation, uh, uh, how uh, evolutionary processes have, have shaped um, the traits you're studying, if you're uh, a biological traits you're studying. So the parasite stress theory of values is both approximate and ultimate theory of how humans get their values. So in the proximate uh, framework of causation, um, individuals uh, are growing up in different ecological settings 
And those different ecological settings have different levels of infectious disease. So uh, the, if, you're, you're, if you're growing up in a high disease area, you have activation of your immune system um, many times and uh, could be chronic activation, long-term activation. So number of activations of your uh, immune system and duration of those activations. And that varies uh, among individuals. Some individuals grow up in relatively disease-free areas, uh, others in highly uh, uh, likely, you know, lots of disease areas. And that, that is one proximate category of causation. So if you're, if you're uh, growing up under high infectious disease, then you uh, select unconsciously values that will protect you against infectious disease. And that's where conservatism comes in, as I will explain. Uh, conservatism is a strategic collection of values for avoiding and managing infectious disease. High infectious disease, you get conservatism. Low infectious disease, you get uh, liberalism. So if you're growing up in low disease area, then the uh, strategically you adopt liberal values. So that's the approximate uh, kind of sketch of how we get our values. And then let me go to basically what I mean by core values. So core values in psychology have received tremendous attention because uh, they affect everything we do, basically our core values. And, uh, and you, can, you can put boundaries on the core values uh, when you just pull from political science. So political scientists uh, have their dimension of values that they study ranging from highly conservative to highly liberal. And they've worked hard to figure out a way to measure individuals' uh, values and how to place them on, the, on that continuum of values. So it's a, it's a psychometric a, a questionnaire you fill out and that has validity for identifying an individual's core values, so where they go on that continuum from highly conservative to highly liberal. And, does, and you, can do, uh, you can do individuals, you can do uh, uh, regions, you know, average uh, values in uh, uh, states, uh, countries, counties now, a lot of research going on at the county level of uh, values. Um, so uh, so that, that, you know, how your encounters with infectious disease and their effects on you as you're growing up is one category of proximate causation during the individual's lifetime. And then <clears throat> in the ultimate uh, level of causation, uh, the, you, you know, we have in our heads uh, psychological adaptations associated with acquiring culture. And uh, uh, these, uh, the familiar example of that is the acquisition of language. So the kid's growing up, he's in getting all this noise around him and so forth as he's growing up. And then one day he starts talking. There's spe psychological specializations in the brain for language acquisition. And that's one important component of culture. So the, the kid acquires the local language, even the local dialect, because that's what works locally for his social success or her social success. Uh, the uh, local language. And it works the same way with values, different psychological uh, adaptations involved in acquiring values, but the same kind of principle. So you pull in those values, put those in your cultural repertoire that work uh, against local adversity. And with regard to values, the local adversity, uh, fundamental local adversity is level of infectious disease locally. So you have at the ultimate level, evolution by, by natural selection has built these psychological mechanisms that specialize in acquiring values. So that's the kind of a sketch of the proximate and ultimate frameworks of the theory. And the way we, we tested this, um, we started doing the tests and, but now it's exploded. It's going on all over the world uh, uh, and some very interesting current research going on. But the way we first tested it is uh, take the data by World Health Organization for 
disease levels across all the countries of the world. They keep up with that. And uh, you have two levels of data there on disease uh, rates. You have number of infectious diseases per country, and you have the proportion of people in the country that uh, have infectious diseases. So, and those are, those are tightly correlated, almost perfectly correlated, number and prevalence of infectious diseases across the 200 countries of the world. So, <clears throat> so um, the prediction, of course, from the theory of parasite stress theory is that as more infectious diseases uh, occur across countries, you'll find more conservative uh, values in, in general. And the conservative value data came from uh, psychology literature. So psychologists publish uh, their, their results on uh, studies of core values across countries. And we pulled, a, we pulled the values data and then looked at the relationship between infectious disease level and core values, predicting that as diseases increase, more conservatism. And indeed, it works like a charm. So more infectious diseases across country, the greater the degree of conservatism. So the lower the infectious disease, the greater the degree of liberalism, because the conservatism and liberalism are on different poles. And then I should mention too that, um, so cross-cultural psychologists are very interested in values too, and they have a different dimension than the political scientists. Political scientists have got the conservatism, liberalism dimension, but fundamentally the same dimension is characterized in cross-cultural psychology by collectivism, individualism. So collectivism being conservatism, individualism being, uh, being liberalism. So, uh, so though, you know, you can, you can uh, we, we pull the data from cross-cultural psychology on collectivism, individualism, and look at it in relation to infectious disease across countries, and you get the same pattern. Uh, that I described, more, more infectious disease, more collectivism. And uh, then we went to the state level, U.S. state level, so the 50 states, and that helps, uh, you know, going from, the countries vary in a lot of different ways, so, that create, you know, you got a, a bunch of con potential confounds there in any analysis of infectious disease in relation to values when you're looking across country. But when you look across states, that helps with controlling some of the potential confounds. Of course, in our analyses, we, uh, we always uh, control potential confounds statistically as well. You know, going to the area of research and see what the researchers think causes collectivism, what, what they think causes individualism, or what researchers think causes conservatism and uh, liberalism, and control those variables statistically. But when you go to the state level, you have this additional control of a finer grained analysis. And um, it works the same way. The infectious disease data for the states comes from the CDC. The CDC keeps up with uh, infectious disease levels for all the states and you go, go to their site and pull their data. And uh, we show that more infectious disease, more conservatism uh, across the states. And recently uh, researchers are going to the county level. And that's cool because uh, you got 3,200 counties, so you got a bigger, bigger data set than states and uh, county level data from CDC on uh, infectious disease works the same way. More conservatism, more infectious disease. So the way, the way, let's unpack conservatism now slash collectivism, start there to see how this value system um, works to uh, defend against infectious disease and manage infectious disease. So with, collect, with conservatism, you have, um, I mean, values have been studied a lot. So, you know, which, which values correlate with which values and so forth. That's well established in the, in the psychology uh, and political science literature. So uh, one component of conservatism is, uh, is uh, xenophobia. And xenophobia, of course, is fear and avoidance of out the outside of foreigners. Uh, that's what it means. And a component of xenophobia is neophobia. Neophobia is just fear and avoidance of new. It doesn't have to be new people. It can be new ideas or new places or anything new. 
And uh, as conservatism increases, the uh, people get more xenophobic, including neophobic. Uh, that's, that's, a, that's a big part of conservatism. Another uh, uh, value that's in the conservatism realm, uh, importantly, is uh, ethnocentrism. And ethnocentrism is, uh, is localism. So you're, you're focused and you're parochial. You're, you're, the people you like and interact with are local people, not distant uh, people, foreign people. And um, yeah, it starts with the, starts with the uh, nuclear family, your eth ethnocentric uh, involvement. The nuclear family, then the then the extended family, and then other people, part of your group, in group that have the same values. They're local folks. It's ethnocentrism. Another component of uh, conservatism is uh, what biologists call philopatry, and it's love of where you grow up, where you're born and grow up. You stay home. You don't disperse much. So basically, we're talking about uh, xenophobia, including neophobia, ethnocentrism, and philopatry. And the reason those are function importantly in defense against infectious disease has to do with uh, fundamental facts about the ecology and evolution of infectious disease. Let me explain. So the way, the way infectious disease and host interaction work is they co-evolve. So diseases are evolving to eat the hosts constantly. The hosts are evolving to defend themselves against infectious disease. And that's an antagonistic co-evolutionary race that all is going on always with hosts and, and their parasites. And parasites, that is mean in any infectious agent can be, can be a virus, bacterium, fungus, worm, uh, protozoan, uh, whatever, you know, parasite in the broad sense of any infectious agent. So the hosts are co-evolving constantly with their, with their parasites. And these co-evolutionary races are very localized geographically. And that's the case, not just for human infectious diseases, that's a general principle of immunology. The co-evolutionary races of plants, all animals and humans are very geographically localized. So you get, for example, you take the castes of India, one place, different castes. The people have different immunity and they have different parasites, even though they're living in the same place. You get different strains of TB in different neighborhoods in Morocco, for example. Uh, in uh, ethnographic societies that uh, anthropologists study have two villages just a few miles apart and they have different uh, immunology and different parasites and so forth. So these coevolutionary races are lo very localized. Hence, starting going back to xenophobia. So with xenophobia, you are disliking that outgroup people. Those, those people uh, have uh, different parasites and different immunity because your, your immunity is local and the people around you have the same immunity, basically. So you're relatively immune to the local infectious diseases because of this geographic localization of the host parasite coevolutionary race, relatively immune to those, but not to the parasites on the outside, okay? Uh, so that's one big component of uh, how conservatism interacts with and defends against infectious disease by the xenophobia. Then the ethnocentrism part of, um, of uh, conservatism is also important for uh, dealing with infectious disease and managing it. So you have, when infectious diseases come, you want to have a lot of local social support. And that's what the ethnocentrism does. You've got all these local people that have basically uh, local immunity and uh, they're, uh, they're there to uh, help your family, your friends and so forth. Uh, and then the philopatry, also staying home, makes a lot of sense from the standpoint of the, of the uh, regional localization 
of the infectious disease. So you don't disperse because by dispersing, you're going you're gonna to get into habitats with new parasites. So you stay home. So <clears throat> that's how uh, basically that works um, to connect the infectious disease with our, with our core values. So, you know, low infectious disease, liberalism, growing up with no infectious disease, liberalism. Liberalism's a great, uh, great value system when infectious diseases are low. With liberalism, you're, you have xenophilia, the opposite of xenophobia. So you like different people. You, you know, you'll have, in your, you'll have in your interaction group uh, on the liberal end, you'll have in your interaction group people that have different values from you, different color. Uh, you have a bigger social network, bigger mating network, and so forth. And also with liberalism, you have more openness to uh, new things, new ideas. You have neophilia instead of neophobia. And openness to new ideas is very important for uh, uh, happiness and survival and so forth, you know, like in science and all that that liberals have. Right. And, uh, yeah, and, um, and so that's kind of a sketch, brief sketch of where it is and the, um, of, the, of, the, of the theory. And uh, again, it's uh, lots of people are studying it out there now. It's really, I'm really, really happy about that. It's impacting uh, economics uh, research. We did some initial stuff connecting uh, the theory to some traditional uh, uh, areas of economic research and others of economics. Economists are picking it up now and uh, lots of psychologists too. <clears throat> so what, 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 what should I, what is on your mind with regard to questions? Well, uh, one of the main questions, since you've mentioned exposure to disease and uh, possibly, you know, parasites in general as all forms of, you know, diseases, uh, bacteria and fungi, et cetera. Yeah. But in terms of somebody who is, who has been exposed, who has been sick multiple times, we could say that, or somebody who has parasite, we could say that there's a state of inflammation that also occurs yeah. uh, with that. And, and so there's physiological changes to the yeah. person. And because now we are looking into these, this area and uh, even things like, um, you know, trade anxiety as being connected to possible exposure to viruses uh, like, uh, like uh, the um, uh, herpes virus and other types of viruses creating uh, higher inflammation around the yeah. body. Uh, now, but you've mentioned also another thing to unpack because the terms conservatism and liberal are quite uh, loaded and have yeah. a strong cultural component. The way I've always uh, understood it was more in, in terms of authoritarianism right. and uh, liber libertarianism or right. liberalism. But you mentioned what it sounds like a, a lot of these components have that openness, as you said, like in the big five. So high openness to experience, to ideas versus yeah. more closure and- Right, the openness, openness uh, personality variable. It's been known a long time that openness correlates with uh, liberalism, close-mindedness with uh, conservatism. And that's part of the, that's part of the uh, neophobia uh, that I mentioned really, it captures that personality uh, component. But, uh, with, I, I should mention too on the, uh, so I talked about the cross-national research, we and then others did too, parasite level uh, across uh, uh, countries and across states. But after we started publishing that stuff, uh, experimental psychologists got on, and got on it and started doing some cool stuff in the lab with regard to the theory. So you can show people a series of slides. It's 10 slides in the slideshow that's validated. And uh, that show them the 10 slides that have immediate parasite threat in the slides. So you got a dirty toilet, you got a person vomiting, you got a person sneezing, you got a person with skin pox, those kinds of slides. Show those to people. You measure the people's values before you show them the slides. And then you show them the parasite threat slides and the people become 
uh, more conservative immediately. Immediately. Are you speaking about uh, Sheldon Solomon's research on this as well? Who? Sheldon Solomon. Uh, um, as possible. Yeah, because he, he was on the show about terror management theory and exposure yeah. to these things. So maybe maybe he was using the same the same experiment. But right. But with, with regard to that stuff I'm mentioning with the parasite threat, the controls there in that research are good. So they'll, they'll, what the researchers will do is show them the parasite threat slides. And then you have a control group where you show them other threats, other kinds of threats. And the shift in values is only specific to the parasite threat, not the other categories of threat. So it's not a generalized um, you know, terror response. It's a very specific response. And interestingly, too, uh, follow up on that, uh, when, when, the, when the people are becoming more conservative immediately upon looking at these slides, there's a change in the classical immune system, too. Let me explain. So you, we got two immune systems. We got the classical immune system, which is the T cells and white blood cells and thymus and spleen and all that stuff you learn about in uh, a typical uh, immunology class at university. Uh, and that's the classical immune system. Then we got the behavioral immune system, which is the psychological uh, features and behaviors associated with avoidance and management of infectious disease. And values are part of that behavioral immune system. Okay, so you show you show you show uh, people these slides, and they shift to more conservative values immediately, and they also activate components of their classical immune system immediately. White blood cells production increases on seeing these slides, and there's a salivary. Um, we, we saliva is full of uh, antibodies basically and and uh and antibiotics uh, antiseptic uh and so that saliva part of the uh, immune system also increases on seeing the slides so that's pretty cool yeah yeah that's that's absolutely fascinating and now just yeah. just they're doing see. more with it now the local the, some of the stuff you can you can take uh you can do these big internet studies you know thousands of people and uh, have one group reads a pretend press release that talks about COVID, uh, really high case number, lots of hospitalizations in your region, and all that kind of stuff. And then another control, the control there is some other kind of threat, like uh, uh, climate threat or something, mm -hmm. tornadoes or something. And when, you, when the people read the COVID threat, um, uh, they become uh, more conservative. Yeah. yeah. That's very interesting because, yeah. but, you know, there, it is uh, paradoxical. I guess th this changes uh, from culture to culture, from country to country. One of the most interesting and sad parts of this pandemic has been looking at how it's become politicized. It should be, you know, it should yeah. be public health, but instead we have political factions taking okay. one side and uh, from what I've seen in, in the United States, the the uh, more conservative side has been the ones that have been less um, less willing to, you know, vaccinate themselves. Yeah. And oh, yes, that's to... a strong pattern. Very strong. Isn't, but isn't that paradoxical, though, given what you've it said? It seems so, but I haven't I haven't told you about one key thing uh, in conservatism. And I should have mentioned it up front because you'd mentioned it in your introduction, uh, authoritarianism. So that's, that's tied very, very strongly to conservatism. More conservative, the more the authoritarian uh, the person is. And authoritarianism uh, is, is just a part of conservative ideology. And it's the, it's the view that you get your knowledge not from... Uh, books and you know science and all that you get your knowledge from what you define as the authority uh, people and those are traditional kinds of authority figures like the church uh, your parents um, and uh, a conservative leader in the case of where you, where we're going with this a conservative leader 
And you can get these highly authoritarian people that'll follow this, follow their leader, uh, regardless of how crazy he becomes. I mean, you know, we got Nazism, fascism in Italy, fascism in Germany, and fascism in, in Japan. And that's where the whole damn countries uh, followed these crazy guys uh, off a cliff. And uh, a version of that, a uh, lesser version of that is uh, what's happened in the United States with regard to the politicalization of um, the pandemic. So Trump's up there saying there's no problem. Uh, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's a hoax. The whole thing's a hoax and not supporting the knowledge uh, about the infectious disease. So that pulls in all these authoritarian folks. Uh, in support of him, and uh, and there, that's where that's you know authoritarianism is a basic part of conservatism, basically. And uh, so research now, some research now is looking at you take you take uh, you know these big samples you can get by internet studies, uh, and you 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 look at right at the beginning of the pandemic people and then a different set of people uh, six months later into the pandemic and authoritarianism is increasing in, in your sample. Uh, measured conservatism is increasing and support for Trump is increasing and so forth uh, in those kinds of samples. Yeah. And uh, that, 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 that infectious disease perception of risk of infectious disease is fundamentally important in, in uh, the political world, now has been published um, in uh, French election during COVID. Um, let's see, French election, um, of course, US uh, 2016, um, who, who supported uh, Trump and so forth, what county supported Trump. Mm -hmm over Hillary Clinton, that's basically infectious disease level predicts all that. Uh, Poland, uh, a recent study looked at a, uh, an election in Poland yeah. and uh, more infectious diseases uh, in an area, greater support for the conservative Polish uh, uh, politicians. So that's, that's all going on in a big way. It's really exciting time for looking at how infectious disease is um, is interacting with you know real time real 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 things that people are interested in, and uh, so yeah, yeah, and and isn't as you said it, it's not just uh, exposure to actual pathogens it can just be the perception as well right oh, yeah well yeah and that's another component of the the way the way we perceive disease risk so. The psychology of um, behind conservatism uh, is uh, exaggerated. Would be one way to talk about it. That is, it will accept in perceiving disease risk. It will accept a lot of false positives, mm. and so then that's why you get these prejudices. All the prejudices, like conservatives being prejudiced against uh, 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 homosexuals, Pre conservatives being prejudiced against people that are overweight, people that are underweight, all that's been studied. And that's, a, that's an exaggeration of uh, uh, this uh, defensive mechanism. You know, better be safe than sorry. If it is different, if it is different than your usual in-group, then be careful because it may be manif a manifestation of infectious disease is the way the psychology. Mentally ill people, all the prejudice against them and so forth, that's coming out of uh, this same kind of phenomenon of a, a, you know, an exaggeration of uh, perception of disease risk. And yeah, but in this case, it would be unconscious, right? It wouldn't be- Oh yeah so obvious yeah, the, the people don't know that they're worried about infectious disease i mean okay. if you if you give them there's a there's a validated questionnaire called the perceived vulnerability to infectious disease and that's been given a lot now and it measures uh your worry 
an individual's worry. And of course, that's highly correlated with conservatism. Hmm. So they're worried about infectious disease, but they're not thinking that, you know, when they, when they uh, show some prejudice toward a person overweight or homosexual or something, they're not thinking that um, I'm avoiding infectious disease by doing this, of course. Right. Yeah. yeah, because, I mean, just to be fair here, the balance, I, I've seen, you know, we see also a lot of the hypervigilance towards the uh, disease yeah. bird. It's almost that's, like that's it. hypervigilance. Yeah. 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 But also, I mean, people that are very aware of it, that, that become over maybe hypochondriac and uh, almost like right. uh, OCD, like in, in disinfecting themselves. Well, yeah, to the point of germophobia, you know, right. where you're worried where it's a phobia, you're worried about infectious diseases interfering with your life, your basic life. Right. Uh, like, you know, like Trump is one of those. Uh, Hitler, he was a famous germaphobe. Uh, okay. Mussolini, <laughs> Mussolini was, was just like Hitler. He was a, he was a, uh, copy of Hitler. He, Mussolini, interestingly, uh, outlawed shake, handshake during oh, his fashion. Wow. Yeah, I didn't know but that. He did the uh, he uh, did the Roman salute. Right. Yeah. Reading. That's a Nazi salute. Yeah. Like, you know, yeah, yeah and yeah. Hitler adopted it too. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I didn't know that. That's very. That's yeah. really interesting. Oh, oh, Mussolini. He said a problem with liberals is they travel all over and pick up these diseases and we don't want them around here. <laughs> oh, so in that, yeah, there it was quite explicit. But yeah. I have to say one, one thing that uh, struck me before when you were mentioning some of the experiments and some of the examples was really yeah. what you said about like people being exposed to these uh, like news stories, for example, with deaths and yeah. here's these disease numbers. And it seems like we have been um, bombarded with this for, I don't know, two years now, almost two years. Yeah. And uh, I'm sure it's, it's having its effect on day-to-day uh, -day life and it's changing right. social interactions to the point where, I don't know, if, I, I think it can be uh, quite dehumanizing. So yeah. what, and I wanted to ask you if there was historical precedence that you've seen, because I've also I was reading through an article about the the correlations with major disease outbreaks uh, yeah. and then uh, times of repression, times yeah. of repression and authoritarianism. You've yeah. mentioned some of them, but I've I've read that it goes further back, like to the, for example, the the plague in and Europe, Spanish flu and all Spanish that Spanish yeah. flu. If there oh, was. Yeah. Well, the, uh, there's an interesting paper, just recent paper, looked at uh, the Spanish flu in Germany. Uh, the, there's a data set that uh, is managed by University of Michigan, uh, Third Reich uh, German data. The Third Reich, they collected all kinds of data. Mm -hmm. uh, and they have data on the death rate from Spanish flu um, in um, 1918, 1920, death rate. They have death rate for tuberculosis. Tuberculosis was a big one too at that point in Europe. But um, they had for, for all the cities in Germany, okay? Death rate from Spanish flu, 1918, 1920. And then they have data on the proportion of people in a city that voted for Adolf Hitler or voted for his party, social, uh, National Socialist Party, Nazi Party. Yeah. And the more deaths from Spanish flu in a city, the greater the support uh, vote-wise for Nazism in Germany. So there's, there's that, you know, and when the, the voting was 1930 through 33 when things were really Taking, taking off Nazi-wise in, in Germany. And there's a, there's a group now doing COVID the same way. They're gonna look at uh, deaths from COVID uh, in relation to uh, support for uh, uh, political extremists and so forth. Uh, and uh, that's going on. Uh, I believe that a research group at uh, University of British Columbia doing mm -hmm. that. So that's cool. Yeah. yeah. 
it's cool. I would say just possible confounds here. I mean, in terms of economics, yeah. like economic frustration and yeah. Well, that's like that. that's the old that's the old interpretation. You know, when the historians, you ask the historian, now, why did those German, all those Germans, follow Hitler? And same yeah. in Italy and same in Japan and Nazi with uh, with fascism. And uh, so, well, the people were just economically distraught and all that kind of stuff. And so they followed these crazy guys. But the parasite stress theory adds a new, new window there entirely. And the paper I mentioned that looked at um, Spanish flu in Germany and its relationship to subsequent um, support for the Nazi party they had uh, data to control the economic variables. They had, uh, the data were in there. They had uh, uh, the work, uh, let's see, average wage in each of the city and had that. Yeah. They had the proportion of people employed in each of the German cities. And so they had controls on those kinds of economic factors. Um, and disease though is related strongly to, to economic issues. Uh, like, uh, you know, uh, if you have lots of diseases, then uh, that really hurts uh, economic development. And, uh, and uh, we, did, we did studies look at uh, the, uh, the flow of uh, innovations, as economists call it. So a flow of innovations into countries, it varies a lot. Some countries don't have much in the way of modern technology and medicine and all that kind of stuff. And that's, uh, that's, you know, the related to, uh, related to not liking new stuff. So mm. neophobia and, and conservatism parasites. Uh, so we reinterpreted a bunch of old uh, classic economic data sets uh, in light of the parasite stress theory and GDP itself, you know, rich countries, are rich because they got a lot of innovative people and those people are on the liberal end, of course. Mm -hmm. uh, conservatives uh, are thinking, they're, they're, they're less likely to think outside the box. The more conservative they are and they never think outside the box. So you've got innovative people that can build, uh, build economic uh, success. And um, so we did all that, yeah. Yeah, yeah so yeah, so this is, uh, this is great and I would say uh, just just looking at, at again at some of the things that are happening though that uh, things like for example uh, in the in Europe in the U.S. I'm not sure but I think so there's even now like this almost segregation people not getting vaccinated yeah right? so but even that I would say is a form of uh, authoritarian it is uh, you know because I would yeah. say you know I'm I'm I've been a proponent i've been vaccinated but i think that these harsh measures are not exactly the best uh, ways of yeah. convincing people to to do that right so like what harsh measures yeah and so and what do you think so just to close on a like a prediction or a positive yeah. note maybe hopefully but uh what do you think is uh going to be the way forward or some prediction for the immediate future with this situation which will hopefully resolve itself soon yeah well it's going to resolve uh when we hit herd immunity you know so um you're in Prague right now right yes how are things there with regard to uh, vaccination rates and so forth uh you i know Yes, I, I believe it's, uh, I, I don't have the exact number, but I'm pretty sure it's above 65%. Okay, so population. pretty good shape, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, it's about the same here, maybe set in, where I'm in New, the state of New Mexico, it's about 71% here now, okay. pretty good shape. Uh, you know, some states uh, are really falling behind. So, you know, when we get, uh, but herd immunity with this thing, is really gonna be hard to reach because of all the travel people are doing. So you could get you could get herd immunity, you know, approaching herd immunity in the United States, but you're constantly getting people coming in from other places uh, that have low vaccination rates and so forth, you know? So um, 
it's going to take a while. Hard to know. I, you know, there's not a concrete prediction of when we're going to get there based on the complexities of vaccination rate variation throughout the world. You know, right. uh, and the and the traveling to bring in these uh, bring in the new variants and all. So, but I tell you, with regard to uh, you might be interested in this, the uh, so-called cultural revolution of the 50s and 60s in the West. So when you think about that, um, think about uh, civil rights, uh, all the civil rights stuff, women's rights, um, um, all kinds of liberalizations. So it's a bunch of liberals all of a sudden popped yeah. up in the 50s and 60s and uh, changed voting laws, uh, you know, recognized women as human beings. and. <laughs> And and, uh, and uh, you know, outcast groups, uh, minorities, and so forth were given more rights, and so that phenomenon. And, it, and there's a that's an interesting um, example of what we're talking about here, because in it was only in the West that it was happening. By the West, I mean the U.S. and Canada, Western Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, places like that. Uh, 1920s, there was uh, the invention of uh, chlorinated water. So you put a little chlorine in public water and it kills lots of infectious diseases. Right. And that swept throughout the West very rapidly, very rapidly. And then in uh, uh, also in the 20s, there began uh, the first food handling laws. So sanitation with regard to handling food, that started. Also in the 20s, uh, uh, sewage treatment plants began. People had indoor plumbing or indoor plumbing instead of just you know taking a dump out in the backyard to do plumbing and so forth in sewage treatment plants. All that was going on in the 20s. Then in the 40s, we had antibiotics come along, real good antibiotics right after World War II. And uh, and that was just changed the world with regard to, um, with regard to uh, dealing with diseases and uh, broad spectrum antibiotics. And there were some, in the thirties, there were some antibiotics, but they, they had uh, terrible side effects and about as bad as the diseases. So we really had good ones in the forties. Then we had child vaccination programs in the West too, in the forties that started. And, uh, Swamps were drained and so forth uh, throughout the, uh, much of the Western world to reduce mosquito levels. So all these health interventions beginning in the 20s through the 40s were going on. And then a generation, two generations later, you get all these uh, liberals, hippies and free love and uh, you know, uh, racial uh, change in racial attitudes uh, change in attitudes about homosexuals and so forth and so on. So that's a really good case uh, case story that that people can uh, relate to. I think. Yeah, that's uh, fascinating. I would say the sexual liberation too is part of that. You know, the fifties and sixties. So a, a liberalization of sexual attitudes. Right. Uh, then but, so that. but one question or comment that that I have here. Randy, is in terms of this parasite stress, it seems like, as you mentioned, in this globalized world that where you have a lot of travel, a lot of migration now yeah. um, happening, I can see that this is kind of like a cycle that just perpetuates itself, maybe improves in the terms of, you know, when people are traveling, obviously you, you will have people bringing new, new diseases and yeah. uh, maybe the, you know, the the authoritarianism and xenophobia will rise as, yeah. as you mentioned, as a kind of a, uh, an evolutionary defense in a way. Right. Yeah. Um, and then we can figure out, you know, through innovation, hopefully we can figure out ways of improving public health and then the attitudes shift. There's more openness, more liberalism. So I, I find this is um, quite, a, quite a, a practical uh, discovery in terms of uh, what, you know, what it can lead to in terms of, uh, you know, public health and laws and, 
yeah. as you mentioned, economic development. So I would say that this should be a, a top priority to, to for people, you know, people in positions of power to think about. I would hope so. I would hope so, Simon, that people uh, in power will take, you know, disease science and all that seriously. Uh, and uh, haven't seen a whole lot of that. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate. And I was just thinking when because when you mentioned, you know, I've I've spoken to uh, parents of friends who are uh, very conservative, and they grew up in that time and. What they told, what, what they were saying was, and this is, it just popped in my mind, yeah. was, well, you know, we had the sexual, uh, sexual revolution, sexual liberation, and yeah. look what we got. We, we, we have uh, AIDS and uh, yeah. all these diseases, and uh, that was kind of their explanation for their conservatism. Right. So I just thought that was... Uh, disease, yeah. yeah. Yeah, that they said, well, look, maybe our... Uh, that they were saying maybe our parents had it right there. And then, and, uh... <laughs> yeah, again, liberalism's great as long as disease level is low. But if you got a lot of diseases, then you're interacting with all these outgroup people that um, you get sick from, you know? Right. So, uh, yeah. And, and uh, just hope for the best. Well, and, and I would say as people who are like, like you and me who are also involved in education, I think we also have a, a role to play in, yeah. in, in bringing out this Absolutely. knowledge and awareness. I'm doing a, I'm doing a bunch of uh, these uh, interviews like the one we're doing right now. Uh, I've decided to, I'm, I'm, I'm doing still doing some research and writing and all that, but uh, uh, I'm going to do more of this. And uh, I think it's important what you're doing. Yeah. Well, thank you. And, and it's uh, great to have you. And thank you very much. And any uh, closing remarks or places where people can find your, your work, your books? Uh, let's see. You can just look. If you Google my name, Randy Thornhill, um, there are books, my books and uh, website and all that is there. And so people can explore it that way. If they have any specific questions, they can email me um, at uh, rthorn, email the letter R, T H O R N, rthorn at unm.edu. Okay. Well, thank you very much. And uh, thank you to the listeners. So have a good day.